Hello there, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, for ultimate meaning and purpose in their lives. And indeed, you can find all the evidence objectively for that and subjectively on my site at ultimatemeaning.com. That's ultimatemeaning.com. You can go there and check out all about that. I have a flip book there that you can go through with uh, extensive links that are all highlighted in red. Go to very amazing and profound YouTube videos showing from many fields of science and of archaeology the reality that is confirmed objectively that I'm talking about. And also it is confirmed very strongly subjectively from people from a great variety of backgrounds from all around the world that have had their lives transformed by coming to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal. So for those that are new, I suggest you go to my website there, check out that flip book where you can go through and look at very amazing videos, including the discovery of the Red Sea crossing of the children of Israel, where the divers actually go under the water, show the chariot wheels. All of that has been found. The real Mount Sinai that's blackened at the top, just as described in the Bible, is that God came down in a tremendous glowing fire on the top of the mountain. It's all there. All the evidence is irrefutable. And there are many other examples of things there that you will be very amazed at. There is extensive evidence against the theory of evolution showing that it is a mastery of deception and of lies, exposing that all with very solid, concrete evidence that cannot be refuted. And I've also done videos there where I've rebutted a famous atheist um, and some of the things he was saying in a debate to someone else that was also standing for the evidence of intelligent design of a creator. Well, this message is in particular for those that have come to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal. It is a message that I just want to briefly, first of all, in a nutshell, share with those that may be new from any particular background, uh, kind of a long introduction. Um, sometimes it ends up being a long introduction, but it always shows in the notes under the video, YouTube video, where to go for the actual beginning of the message. So I just want to point out for those that are new that you can really find a lot more detail on the website I just referred you to watching those videos. So it may be kind of pointless for me to keep having a long introduction when you can go right there to check these things out for yourself. There is a reason for which all things exist and consist. There's a reason for why you are alive. There is ultimate meaning and purpose that you can discover for your life. God created you 
for his pleasure, but he created you with free will. He created you with free will because only therein is there the capacity for you to love. Beings that are free will beings are self-originating. They make their own choices. Only therein is there the capacity to love. You see, God is love. But I need to define what love is. And therein I will also define what truth is and what reality is. What is love? I mean, I'm talking about the highest form of love. If you look in the Bible in the New Testament, the Greek language back then had three terms for the word love. Eros, sexual love. Filio, the love of feeling. And agape, the highest form of love. A love that always chooses the highest lasting good. It may be accompanied with a filial love or a love of feeling, but it's independent of that. It is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. Obviously, any lesser choice as such would have a measure of corruption in it. This love is so integral, it is so pure, that as it were, it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love in the slightest, the love that I'm describing, the highest form of love, that always chooses the highest lasting good. And the ultimate good is this love who is God. Of course, it's not just some abstract love. God is not abstract and some vague ethereal force. God is an ultimate personality, the ultimate being, the source of all creation. And he is love. First, this love is the opposite of corruption because corruption destroys Goodness, love, always brings forth goodness without corruption. But when you have beings that are merely machines, well, there's no capacity to love because all you have is information input and output. That's why it doesn't matter how intelligent the AI stuff is that is around. It will never be conscious like some people think it can become conscious. There's no way that can happen. And this is according to highly qualified scientists, which you can, if you purchase my book um, on the afterlife on Amazon, it's called Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable. And I promise you, you'll find it more interesting and more thorough in its answers than the bestseller from a Christian viewpoint. And um, you will find that really what I say is from a Christian viewpoint, I have a criteria in that book that really doesn't matter whether you're Christian what background you're from. You would always have to use that same criteria to filter out what is corrupt or deceptive in regards to many things and certainly in understanding the afterlife as well, which this book goes into in great detail. So, I want to point out to you that this God who is love 
created us with the capacity to love, but that means there's the potential to make choices that are contrary to who God is in his love and in, in the perfection of his love. So there's the potential of a hell-contagious state of being through our choices that are wrong that we take upon ourselves, a hell-contagious state of being, a corrupting, destructive state of being that even is worse than non-existence because it means you are separated from the source of love and when you are separated from the source of love you are in a realm of torment that is worse than if you were nothing. It is hell. And so you have to ask yourself if what you're believing is some delusion that promotes corruption and death what is the fruit of what you are believing in? What I am sharing with you here is far from that. It is the very opposite. It is what promotes life. It is not an anti-life teaching. It is a life-enlarging teaching that is from God, who is love. And like I'm saying, okay, so you create, you have beings. They've made a choice that is bounced against this ultimate reality, which is the source of the universe, which is love. Yes, love, which is who God is, is the very source of reality. It is the source of all existence and of all creation. And there's no point saying, oh, maybe some creature, super intelligent creature from outer space is what created the world and everything because that doesn't answer the question of ultimate origin, and it doesn't answer the question of corruption. And corruption is the issue. We see in this world through our free choices the result of rebelling against this ultimate love. And this love will not tolerate it. It is pure. God's love is so pure that it will not tolerate corruption, and it is very severe on the slightest that is contrary to his love. And this is represented, this love, which is represented in God, is represented as a negative symbol in math and electronics and basically in all of nature, because all of nature has got negatives and positives that cause things to come together and so on and shape and form children in the womb and so on. So you have the negative. The negative symbol represents an indestructible foundation of reality from which can spring forth creation without corruption and its ultimate purpose. Obviously, when we have free will in our present state of being here, there is corruption. But God's ultimate purpose is that with our free will, we would be reconciled to God and brought into a place where that corruption is purged out of us and we are brought into a heavenly realm known as heaven, the family of God where there is no corruption and where the pleasure is unspeakable. The pleasure of something far greater than what we experience in this present world. You know, um, you know that particle physics, I, I don't know how many of you are aware of the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, that it goes for something like 25 kilometers, or is it miles in a circumference there? It's too much to describe. and They shoot particles together at tremendous speeds, almost the speed of light when they collide, double the speed of light almost. 
And the temperature there is something like a thousand times hotter than the interior of the sun when they explode, and there's millions of explosions that happen. And these big cameras take pictures of all these explosions which go to mainframe computers around the world. A lot of people don't know about that $16 billion project, and they analyze all of these explosions. They take place in a chamber that is minus the coldest temperature in the universe, which I think is minus 250 degrees Celsius or something. And the magnetic forces, the big magnets where these explosions are taking place, or I forget the exact figure now, but it's over a thousand times more powerful than the gravity of the Earth. And that's where that's all analyzed. And it's... Um, the mathematical analysis shows many interesting facts, which I can just sum up here very briefly for a time. It shows that everything that exists in this third dimension, which is very inferior to other dimensions that they've found through the mathematical analysis, of these explosions which have been going on for years. Are you aware that they discovered the God particle in 2012 with these tremendous collisions taking place in the Hadron Collider? I could go into all of that and talk a lot about all of that discovery. But all of these things, this analysis, shows that there is ten and possibly more dimensions of existence. And the third dimension of existence, which we are in, the physical realm, is very inferior to the fourth, which is way superior to the third. And the fifth is even way superior to the fourth, so on, all the way up to the tenth. That's what the analysis shows. And it shows that 99.49% of everything is empty space in all of those dimensions empty space. You're made up of virtually nothing. Little particles that come together that are little clusters of energy is the atomic structure and that is so far spaced of what consists of you and of everything around you that 99.49% is empty space. But in that little percentage there's all of those dimensions that are include the third dimension all the way up to the tenth. So here you are. And in my book on the afterlife, I show all about all of this and write about it. And uh, you can get that on Amazon. I didn't sell it properly, so there's no star rating on it, but I can guarantee if you read it, you'll probably find it better than the bestseller on the afterlife. So you check that out and give me a review. Oh, I got some things to improve on, and I'll be revising it and improving a few little mistakes here and there. But... Uh, that is, the people, when they physically die, and the medical equipment shows that their brain is flat, that there's no heartbeat, some for almost up to two hours. They say the realm they enter is way more real than this physical realm. One gentleman compared it to 3D paper, or pardon me, 2D paper, or the 2D dimension, where you just write in something or see something on a flat surface, compared to 3D. Well, obviously, 3D, which we are in, is far more real than mere 2D. So much more realer is that dimension they enter into 
beyond the third dimension. Their intellect is super intelligent. They can absorb a whole dictionary in a second. Just like that. They can see any distance pretty well and zero in and see through things and so on. This is all common experience with many people. And time and time again, they tell the doctors what they saw them talking about, what music they were playing, what was happening, things they could have not known when they had been dead. The strongest scientific imperial evidence that you could get because it repeats over and over with many, many cases. That's all in this book. So getting back to the topic of love, God is love. We have the negative symbol. And yes, he created us to be in this realm, but your real life doesn't begin in this realm. This is the realm preparing you for your real life that goes on without end. That's what everyone that experiences death and has been by God's mercy brought, brought back to life by medical equipment has said. Time and time again, there's this consistency. And I could go into a lot more on that. There's all the evidence from every field of science and archaeology you could ever want if you want the truth that will confirm what is true and real. And that is a very positive message that you can experience pleasures of love in heaven. They say in that dimension, the pleasures of love, which is not sexual, is way beyond that, is way greater than anything you can fit experience a pleasure in this physical dimension, whether it's sexual or whatever. The pleasure of that love, of loving God, is so great that you cannot put it according to many that have died, like Dean Braxton, which you can look up on YouTube, B-R-A-X-T-O-N, just look him up, put in front of it N-D-E, standing for near-death experiences, and the name Dean Braxton, or Dale Black, there are many others, highly confirmed have been dead by medical equipment and so on. They all experience a love from God, from Jesus Christ, in this case with Dean Braxton and with Dale Black. But you can't put it in words, it's so great. They knew that if God only created them, that he would have humbled himself more than them on the cross and suffered more than them on the cross through Jesus Christ so that they could repent and be reconciled to God. And they were standing before Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, even people from many other religious backgrounds that have been allowed to see God in the afterlife and come back have the generally same experience of seeing God the Father in the background, which is the great power and the great light, and out of that coming the Son, which communicates more individually and personally. I can't go into getting into all of that right here. But what I'm wanting to share with you here is that about this negative symbol. It represents cutting off all corruption and an indestructible foundation of reality, which is its sources in love. And that love is who God is. And God is not so small that he cannot communicate with all that he's created. 
He created all things for his pleasure. Oh, if you don't like me using the word he, I can use just God created all things for his pleasure. As if it matters. God created all things for his pleasure. And he created those, and he created you for his pleasure. He didn't want you to just be a mere machine or a robot. And he's not so limited that he couldn't communicate, as I said, with his creation in human form. In fact, you can have you can read the account in Genesis 18 in the Old Testament of the Bible of Abraham with the three angels that come while he's sitting there at his tent door in the heat of the day and he bows before them when he sees them. I guess they look like very majestic human beings compared to normal. And he asks if he can have his servant make a meal and they have a meal together. And he addresses the leader of those three is Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for God. And that name Yahweh, which in the New Old Testament in English is the word Lord, it's often the word Lord and then God. The word Yahweh basically means the ultimate reality that is separate and above and beyond creation, the source of reality, the I am that I am. And he's talking to Yahweh and eating food with him. Yes, God can communicate with his creation. He's not so small that he can't communicate with his creation. It is a small concept of God to think that he's up there somewhere and he can't be so great to communicate with his creation in a very personal way. And yes, he is so great in his love. And this is the other aspect. What comes out of the negative symbol is the forming of the positive symbol by crossing out the negative symbol. And indeed, God is so great in this love, not only is this love ultimately pure and perfect, from which issues the very source of goodness and of beauty, and of, of ultimate beauty, of ultimate goodness. And that remains being very severe against corruption and anything that's contrary to love. But this love is so great and ultimate in its expression that God humbled himself more than you, a mere creature on the cross. He suffered more than you, a mere creature on the cross. Can you imagine that? So that you could choose to repent and be reconciled to him. He took judgment upon himself on your behalf in the center of history. And that just didn't happen in the center of history. It was not merely, it was a reality before the world was created really in the infinite past, because God is beyond time. And let me just explain some of these things. Some people say, oh, you believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You believe in three gods. And no, we don't. Not genuine people that know God, they don't. For God to be all ultimate in his power, he must rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence. So he must be in conscious intelligence or in personality, in other words, in those three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond creation, beyond time and space, 
in creation, in the time and space realm, and all the multiple superior dimensions to the physical that are included, and filling all creation in omnipresence. If he's not in personage in those three ultimate realms, how can he be ruling in it or over it? Obviously he is. And so the father means originator, the source. The son is the full expression of the source. The word son means basically expression. It also means word. The son is the full expression, the one and only expression of the perfection of the being of God's love that came into this world in the center of history. And took judgment upon himself so that you could choose to be repent and be forgiven. He resisted temptation and lived a perfect life out of a loving union with the Father while he was in this world. And therefore, he could be a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice for your sins. So that you could say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cleanse me of all my sin. Come into my life. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. Be the central treasure of my life. And he will, if you truly, from the depths of your being, mean it and call on him. And you will experience what Christ promised when he was on the earth. He said, whoever believes with their life into me, out of their innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. And remember that when Christ was on the earth, he said that he was the I am that I am, which is the meaning for the name Yahweh. And so there's Yahweh, the Father, and Yahweh, the Son, and Yahweh, the Holy Spirit, one God, ruling in the three ultimate aspects of existence in three personages that are one personage in God, Yahweh. And so, it is good news that I am bringing for you to know about. And so, from the time of Adam and Eve, they used to take an innocent lamb or animal, like an ox or whatever, and lay their hands on it as a symbol of their sin being transferred to the animal, and then they slew the animal. But they knew the animal didn't forgive them. They knew it was God that was the source of forgiveness and that only God could forgive because only God could have such an integrity of being and without violating and be totally unsparing and, and totally judge corruption and yet without violating that integrity of his love, take judgment upon himself and absorb it without being corrupted by it. And so he rose from the dead and that is very strongly evident. 500 people saw him at one time. Four lawyers set out to try to disprove the resurrection of Christ by writing books, and in the process found the evidence so great they were converted. That's the truth. The last one was Lee Strobel. Check him out on the internet. It's called The Case for Christ, I believe, his book. Well, it's a long introduction, like I said, but this message is for those that have come to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal, by the fact that they have truly called on God to be their Lord and Savior, have asked him to cleanse them of all their sin and to forgive them. And I have prayers on my website at ultimatemeaning.com under the contact link that you can pray with music in the background if you want to do it that way. Let me know if you do that. Okay. So this message I want to now address the churches that are truly gathered around the one true and living God, Yahweh the Almighty's, 
That's the name of God in the Old Testament, and of course, in the New Testament is different language, so it's dressed a different way, but it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the same one true eternal God. And I want to share with you how I share these messages. I will seek to speak today what God is saying by his Spirit to the churches especially in Canada where I am here and in the United States, but also around the world. So what I do is what the Word of God commands us to do. It says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I will seek to let God speak through me. I don't have anything prepared here. I'm just speaking. I'm seeking to allow God to speak through me. I'm not perfect. I may sometimes get a bit into my mind. But overall, I am seeking to let God, by his Spirit, speak through me so that God's word comes out of what I am sharing here. There's another scripture that further explains 1 Peter 4.11 that I just quoted. And it says in Revelations 19.10, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that is what you will experience if you truly have been born again of the Spirit and you worship God in spirit and in truth out of great reverence and awe and love for God, you will be filled with the Spirit that will overflow in utterances that are creative coming forth from you beyond yourself. That's what, and that is what I will seek to do. So the spirit of worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, speaking as the oracles of God or speaking prophetically involves being in a heart set and a mindset of worship. And so I will seek to hear out of worship here what God is saying by his spirit to the churches. At this particular day, which today is March the 2nd of 2024 on Saturday. What are you saying at this particular day, in this particular time, to the churches around the world? And of course, to us as individuals personally. And so what I do to facilitate that is I cast lots to receive the possibility of any chapter from the Bible using a random Bible application. In this case, the one that I'm using is the random Bibleizer. And I pray and I separate it from all defilement afresh each day when I use it. And I pray over it with great reverence and awe, and then I ask, believe God to lead me to the right passage. And I get two chapters. I do it twice. That those two chapters would bear witness with each other as to what God is seeking to say through those chapters because I seek to discover the common theme and message in those two chapters. And then, as I am doing today, <laughs> I used to do it right after when I did audio messages, I give the message. Today I didn't do it because I'm doing this video and it takes a lot of work and time. So I will give you what I received from Monday to Friday of this week, what God is saying by his Spirit. And before that, I always have a worship song, and so we will go into the worship song that I received by the casting of Lot through the 151 songs I have on my website at Love realize.com that's love realize.com and so we will sing this worship song first 
which is the one that came by the casting of a lot. I don't know how it fits into the message, but it is the one that nevertheless came forth, and so that's the one that we will worship with before I get into the message here. So I'm going to bring up that song, and I will minimize myself in a moment here as we worship with this song. Oh uh-huh. 
me so dear, oh God. Between the black and the white, between the Hispanic and the Asian, those laws, yes, they're coming down. Between the Jew and the Gentile, and all the nations, those laws, they're coming down. this kind of a unity. And this is what Christ prayed. He prayed the prayer of John 17, and it is the zeal of his heart for these last days, especially in the time we're living in now, for us as his people to break down the dividing walls. But this is not just some outward thing this time. This is a deep work of God in our lives as individuals that need first the walls broken down in our heart of our own molds, of our own mindsets that cause us to be boxed in from one another, that cause us to have a denominative mindset. God wants us to know his ways in these last days, to walk in his ways. And so he's calling for the body of Christ to come into a whole new order that will not limit the fullness of his headship from inhabiting local assemblies across your nation, across my nation in Canada, across the United States. And this is the key and is more important than all the effort that is going on to have integrity in the elections, which is I'm all for 
and agree with. All of these things are good and should be done. And there should be corruption, should be routed out and take. We are to be the salt of the earth to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. But if we as the body of Christ have not come under the fullness of the headship of Christ in our lives as individuals and corporately, he cannot bring forth John 17, but he will bring it forth because he will find those that are desperate in this hour and hungry and thirsty for nothing less than going all the way with his purpose and calling in their lives as individuals and corporately. So I want to share with you today what God is saying by his spirit in regards to his ultimate purpose to bring forth in these last days his conquering bride church in local cities and towns across the United States and Canada to conquer our nation with the love of God. I want to share with you what God has given to me to share by his spirit. And so I will be going into those scriptures now to share that. And I want to point out, first of all, that I felt such an urgency about these things some time ago now. I think it was about two years ago or more, who knows. And I wrote a book before I did the book on the afterlife, which I shared about, a book titled God, Headship, and Body Invasion, which you can also purchase on Amazon in Kindle or uh, paperback. It's a large six-by-nine paperback, just like my other book on the afterlife is. This one's 368 pages. The other one, God, Headship, and Body Invasions, around 250-some-odd pages in outline format. It's about everything you can do in your local assembly to not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your local assembly. It's a call to a new order that will not limit the headship of Christ when you gather together. For example... No, this isn't an example. I'm, this is something I believe God wants across the nation. He wants the churches in each town and city across your nation to come together to pray and seek God. And it would be good if you did it for three days on a long weekend with fasting and prayer to repent as never before. This is a time of humbling ourselves. This isn't a time for having a bunch of speakers going to the front, taking up the meeting, this is a time for letting people turn to God with all their heart and seek him. And if you can go on a three-day Esther fast, which many Christians have done, it can be very healthy if you're in good health, of course, when you're older or whatever, and you have problems, well, whatever fast you can do. But you seek God together and you cry out unto him for three days in your city, in your town at an appointed time across the nation. And then you never go back to being the church the way you were. You come in after that to the new order that God is calling. Let me give you an example of that. When you come together for your church services, is it just people at the front that everyone watches and listens to and everyone's sitting there passive and doing nothing. Is that what God wants in the last days in the body of Christ? I'll tell you what he wants. He wants his house to become a house of prayer and a house of holiness, 
a gathering where those that are living their lives are living a holy life and have repented of the things of this world that have defiled them or that are keeping them in a state of hardness of heart that causes division and divorce, etc., etc. When you come together, you, have, you may have a pre-service prayer meeting. Cancel your pre-service prayer meeting. Make your church service a time of prayer. Make your house a house of prayer where you become more conscious of Christ in your midst than the people that are running the meeting or what your program is. Become conscious of him in your midst. Come to the repent and turn back to the genuine fear of God. And that's something else I've written a lot on and haven't published is on the fear of God. Eventually, I will probably get around to that soon in the near future I pray we need to return to the genuine fear of God and be awe in awe of whose presence we're in as it says in Ecclesiastes God is in heaven and thou upon earth therefore let thy words be few in other words don't be presumptuous to just utter anything become conscious of whose presence you're in that you speak with carefulness out of a pure heart before him Maybe at first everyone's quietly praying to themselves and on their knees, on their faces before God. And then one prays out and then everyone agrees and bears witness with that one as they feel led to pray out. And another prays out. And you have a time maybe a prayer for half an hour, an hour. And then after that, people begin to be free to move in the gifts of the Spirit. Maybe music is played and but you allow for a time where a person can sing out a song or can give a word of testimony where they don't have to ask permission to use the mic, where they can just, as they sense the spirit rising in them, sing out a song. They may only have a seed thought, but out of that seed thought comes a beautiful song. Or they may have a word of exhortation or encouragement or a testimony. May they be totally free. May God move freely through the body so that as people sense the Lord leading them, they share spontaneously. And then after that, the leadership can share and has the witness of what God has been saying through the various members of the body. But we're so used to not doing that that it might take some facilitation by leadership to get that happening. Maybe with little times where people can all do a five-minute sharing or a sermon or a message. This is the thing that God wants. He wants to awaken the body of Christ up to come into this new order. And don't have two short services on Sunday or Saturday. Have one long service that starts at about two in the afternoon so everyone can properly prepare for it. And you can go for about four hours and then have, always have a meal after. You can bring up, all. everyone can bring a certain, organize to bring a certain amount of food with paper plates, no problem. No work to clean up. This is what God wants in the body of Christ in these last days. is a new order. And I'm just giving you a little bit of what's in the book. Of course, it goes into many other things about tongues and about the seven ones in Ephesians and so on. But this is the hour we're in and God is calling for his body to come together. But there is things that need to be broken down. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to share what God has given by his spirit by the casting of Lot. And so, 
we will go now to, um, I don't know why this is up here. I wasn't planning to have that up there. Um, we will go now to uh, what I received this week, starting on Monday. And I have not even, I just read this over, that's all I did before I got into this message. But I received on Monday, Joel chapter 1 and Zechariah 3. And I always seek to see, what is the common theme? What is God saying? Why did he give me these two chapters? How do they bear witness with each other, with a common message and a common theme? And in both of these chapters, there is judgment upon the people of God for their sins, because, but because they respond with repentance and do seek God, there is not only deliverance, but in the end, entrance into the kingdom of God with an abundant life or eternal life. And so the two chapters, the one about Joel, people are very common that know the Bible, know what that's about in Joel chapter 1. And in Zechariah 3, it is about Joshua, the high priest. Now, Joshua, the high priest, was a man that was seeking God. But no doubt there was a measure of corruption and deception in him, and the enemy was condemning him. And so Satan was standing at his right hand to condemn him. And he was clothed with filthy garments because the enemy was saying, that's who you are. Look at all your failures. Look at the lust you had there. And even though he repented, he was haunted by these things. Do you know that old hymn that says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Well, here he was. He knew that he had repented, but he was being haunted by his failures in the past and feeling unworthy before God. And so, the enemy is condemning him. He's got these filthy garments on. And what does the Lord do? Because he's seeking God and not giving up and saying, well, if I'm such a failure, I may as well give up and not follow God and just give myself to these things. No, he's still seeking God. And so the time comes when there is breakthrough because he persevered to that point that God deemed was the point of critical mass. And then he comes along and the angel of the Lord comes and says, take these filthy garments off him and put on a beautiful clean garment and put a crown on his head. And like the prodigal son, he's rejoicing before God. He has the revelation that his sins are forgiven, that he is complete in Christ. You know, I had only one open vision in my life that I will never forget. I'm not one that gets a bunch of visions, but I had one when I was young in 1975. I'd always sought God all my life with much time and prayer from my youth, from about 14 years old and on. I used to go out into the woods and pray an hour and a half. But when I was in my 20s, I was really struggling with lust and desiring a wife and all of that. And the enemy was really condemning me. But I was really hungry for God. There was two pressures, a tremendous hunger for God. I was saying, Lord, I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
But what is this in your word? You say if we keep your commandments, you will reveal the Son to us. And so I was praying and saying, Lord, I haven't had this revelation where you reveal yourself to me. Yes, I've been born again, but I haven't had the revelation where you reveal yourself to me. You've said if we keep your commandments, well, Lord, I've repented of these sins, but now I come to a point where I'm in this meeting at night and there's my friend Jean and Dennis and her husband Ed and it's one in the morning and we've been seeking God in a home meeting. And we came home from the home meeting and it's one at night. And suddenly the room filled with light. And I can't go on and describe the vision I had. But it was pretty powerful. It was very powerful. And I was feeling so condemned just before this vision. So condemned that I felt this other fellow Dennis was going to take my place and that I was being rejected like King Saul. That's the condemnation and the torment I was under. I felt so condemned. The enemy was saying, you're, you're finished. You're, you're kicked out of the into the wilderness, to die in the wilderness because of the sins you've committed. And Jean looked at me, which was a very godly woman, had been in a, had even fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the past, won whole families to the Lord, very powerful woman of God. She looked at me and she said, Dave, you're birthing Christ. And I let out a wail of relief. Because suddenly I sensed the Lord touch me. I felt him touch me in my head. And I heard him say, not, well, it was like audible. He said, you're complete in him. The room was filling with bright light so I could hardly see anyone. He said, you're complete in him. And I let out a wail of my wail turned into laughter and strangely it reversed. Jean would go into a laughter, I would go into a wail and it would reverse and it was totally spontaneous beyond my control, really. And as this was happening, she was breathing heavily. Her face went into all kinds of wrinkles like time went fast. And then suddenly I wasn't seeing her face, I was seeing the face of Christ. And when I looked into the face of Christ, it was going right into my body and I felt like I was going to die. It was going right through me. It, was, it wasn't just out there. It was going into me. And I felt corruption and I felt I was going to die. And I saw eyes that were filled with love, but so serious like a captain. I tried to laugh. There was no laugh back because he was looking at me. I am calling you into my army. And he was looking at me like a serious captain, but there was incredible love in the eyes. And then you know, he also said, I looked at my hands and it was like I was looking at the hands of Christ. And he said, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And I, and I knew I was his son and yet I knew I wasn't Jesus Christ, but it was like he was in me and my hands were the hands of Christ and yet they were not, they were my hands. But that was the awareness that I was his son. And then as the vision continued, and the whole room was filled with light, I couldn't see anyone. There was incredibly beautiful colors of light and so on. I found myself going up as a martyr, being burned at the stake to God. 
And it was such a beautiful, loving experience. I knew that my life was totally given to him and that I was his, that I could offer myself to him. It was so awesome. It was a beautiful experience, and yet I was being martyred, and I was being burned at the stake. And yet it was so beautiful, I wasn't feeling any pain or anything. It was a beautiful experience, and it was rapturous. And I knew I was his son, and I was set free. I was set free from the condemnation of the enemy. Because I was the kind of person that was very weak and vulnerable to the enemy and could be easily condemned, though I was seeking God very much and desiring him and fasting and praying with these people at that time. Not a super long fast, but it was, I forget, it might have been three days or something. But I will never forget how that set me free and God showed me how holy he was in that vision as I saw how all flesh is his grass. And I couldn't go into all the details of it here because it gets to be a bit much, but he was showing me the vanity of the flesh because I was tempted by women, right? And so God was merciful to me at that time to set me free from that condemnation. And this is what happened to Zechariah the high priest. He was standing at the right hand of God. And you see in Joel chapter 1, the people of God are experiencing God's severe dealing with them because of their sin. Because of their sin, they are in a state that is like Joshua the high priest clothed with filthy garments. But what did they do? Did they turn away from God and give up? No, they sought God. And it says there, let the priest come and all the people come. Declare a solemn assembly. Sound the alarm in my holy mountain. Oh, I could read it all. I have it down here. I don't know if I need to read everything. It, it's sharing about, it says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. That's what God called them to do in chapter 1 there. Then it goes on and says here further down in verse 13, Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Hall, ye ministers of the altar, come lie all night. And sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and is a destruction from the Almighty. It shall come. It is not, is not the meat cut off before our eyes, yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God? And we know what happened in Joel. They turned to the Lord. And there's the mighty outpouring of his spirit that will happen in the last days when the sun and the moon is darkened at that time and was also happening in the time of Peter, which quotes that this would happen in the last days and that what is going to happen in the future in the last days is now being seen there on the day of Pentecost because they sought God and waited upon him. And God is calling his people in this hour to be those that repent, like Joshua the high priest repented, to be those that repent like the people in Joel repented 
And in Israel right now, they are surrounded by their enemies. As it were, they are experiencing God's judgment that is shaking them out of their comfort zones of delusion where they believe the lies like the lies of evolution and the New Age teachings and all of these things that they were doing that were idolatrous. They're being awakened and shaken out of that. And they're becoming, the bones have come together, the flesh has come together. But now, oh God, is about to bring the time of his soon return where the Spirit of God will come into them. And they will turn to him and recognize him as their Messiah. Man, I can feel God amplifying my voice when I'm speaking. That is the hour we're in. It is an hour to seek God. It is not, it is a wonderful thing to, to get a hunger and a desperation for God, for what is ultimately real and fulfilling, which is to know the river of life flowing through you, the indwelling of the living God, like rivers of water dwelling in your inner being. He will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. He's calling for his church across the nations, as I described, to come together and to pray and to never return to being the church the way it ever was, but to come into a new order under the fullness of the headship of Christ, where Christ is the one that is conscious in their midst. No, we're not going to be all jumping and dancing and singing joyful songs. We're going to learn what it means to be in awe of whose presence we're in. Yes, there's a place where that happens in the meetings always, where there's liberty, where there's joy. But first, let us enter into the awe of whose presence we are in and give him the glory and the praise and not be those that move in presumptions that cause the crooked places and the rough places to stumble and turn people away from seeing the reality of God in our midst. And so I want to go on to share with you what I received on Tuesday. By the casting of Lot before God, it was 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Kings 18. And the common theme found in both these chapters is trusting in the living God and resisting the reproach and false accusations of the enemy, which is what we saw was happening to Joshua the high priest and Zechariah 3. The enemy offered a life of ease instead of suffering and war if they would surrender. But they chose to trust God and he delivered them by slaying the armies of the king of Syria with a powerful angel. So what we have in 2 Kings 18 is the account of the armies coming against King Nebuchadnezzar and his people. And many of you are familiar with that account. And so I will touch on that first and just read a little bit of it here. This is what it says of Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. But then we read this. The king of Syria comes against him, which is, I don't believe, Assyria, but Syria. And what does he say? He says this, But if ye say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not 
that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now therefore I pray thee, and then he goes on. So he's mocking the God of Israel. He says, Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. How often? The enemy accuses us by pretending that he is God speaking to us. The Lord told me that you are not worthy, that you must surrender and give up. The Lord is saying you deserve to be kicked out in the desert. You're useless. That's what Joshua the high priest was experiencing. That's what I experienced. But we're still seeking God, right? And so here we see this reproach of the enemy, the same reproach that was described the day before, but also we have the same thing being brought out in 1 Timothy 4. I believe it is 1 Timothy 4, 9 to 11, where it says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe, these things command and teach. We suffer reproach because we refuse to give up our trust in God, which is evident in the fact that we are continuing to abide in him through a life of praying and seeking God. And it also says in 1 Timothy 4, 1-5, Now the Spirit is speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And there is certainly a lot of false teaching happening in the body of Christ. But if we overcome the reproach of the enemy and the accusations of the enemy. How did they overcome him? It says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto the death. Those three things. Not loving your lives, giving your life up, being willing to choose to give your life up, having the word of your testimony and by asking God for cleansing and forgiveness. We overcome. Though a righteous man falls seven times, yet will he rise. And what does it say? What did King David say by the Spirit? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And we need to know that kind of a faith in him that causes us to come boldly to the throne of grace in the time when we may feel so condemned and so weak. We are exhorted to come boldly to the throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, we should settle for nothing less than fully overcoming all things, which is also described in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to go into this now. I'm going to go to Wednesday to continue to reveal what God is saying during this week. Now, 
I think it was more vague on Wednesday. There was one day here where I might have displeased the Lord a bit. I, I don't know, but let's see what it is. I forget. Psalms 33 is about being in awe of God and in the fear of God, which births receptivity to the mercy of God. And in James, it emphasizes to humble ourselves before God, which also births reception to the mercy of God and thus the grace of God. So let's read a little bit of what's in Psalms 33. Um, oh, I've got a lot to, to read here. I didn't know it was that long. Maybe I'll forbear reading all of this, but uh, it's basically emphasizing what I said. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as in heat. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. God is calling us back to the awe of God. Because what does the fear of God, the awe of God, birth? It drives us to the place of honesty and transparency before God. And that, in turn, drives us to the place of humility before God. It also drives us to the place of humility before God that, in turn, drives us to the place of honesty and transparency before God. And it is being in that place that God can pour out his grace. And it goes on and says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God, whose Almighty's, plural, Elohim, meaning Almighty's, is Yahweh, the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Yahweh looked from the heavens, he beholdeth all the sons of man from the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. And it's all really wonderful and rich to read. And I somehow got Psalms 34 in here. But I'm going to just skip all of that and go to James and just read a few of those verses. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. And your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. There's a time for humbling ourselves before God and seeking him. And then he will lift us up in true purity and in true liberty. Okay, I will continue on. I'm being distracted because for some reason, even though I don't have a cold or anything, I'm getting a little leakage out of uh, uh, my nose here. I'm just going to quickly grab some Kleenex and continue. So on Thursday, I had an amazing 
wonderful rich time in the Word of God. I received Ruth 4 and Obadiah 1, and I couldn't see any common theme between it. And I was thinking, God, what have I done? I displeased you somehow here. What's going on? I couldn't see it, right? So I cast lots for another one, and I got James 3. And I began to see a bit how those fit together. So I cast, but I wanted more. So I cast, and I got First Chronicles 16, and then I could see how all these chapters really did fit together. And so I will share with you, and this could be, this in itself here could be, I could preach this and it would be a really long sermon. But I will say that the common theme between these chapters is saying that when we do not rebel at the severity of God's judgment and curse with our tongue as a result of our rebellion, it then when we don't do that, it can then result in great praise and blessing with our life and mouth. Now, we may have times where we fail God that way, but we can come to the place where like a horse is broken in to the rider, we are broken in. If we persevere and repent. And in First Chronicles 16, David came into the great blessing because in the end he did not rebel at God's judgment because of treating the Ark of the Covenant as common. And we know the story about that, where the priests were taking the, they were planning to take the Ark of God to the city of David. But the priests violated the right order that God had ordained, which was an order that ensured that there would the, the ark would not be treated as something common, but as very sacred and precious. And so they allowed the ark to be sh shaken on the cart to the point that the priests held the handles. And when that happened, he was smitten dead. He held one of the handles. And this caused David to be fearful of God. So that he had the ark go into the house of Obed-Edom. And so it stays there for quite some time. I forget how many months. And then he finds out from all the people that the house of Obed-Edom is being blessed. And he's beginning to realize he has had a wrong perception of who God is. His severity and his severity in judging sin is very severe to us. But it is good because he has our best interest in mind. He doesn't want us to have corruption in our lives that will rob us, that will destroy us. He is severe because of who he is, too, that we would in any way diminish our relationship with him by beginning to perceive him in an idolatrous way as, as just being common. No, he is holy. And holiness is beautiful. It says, worship the God. It says, worship God in the beauty of holiness. What is the holiness of God? It is the integrity of his God's love that will not tolerate corruption in our lives or in this world that results in us seeing the terrible consequences of our corruption in judgment where we see the curse and the suffering around us and in our own lives. God isn't the author of death. 
He is the author of life, but he must judge what is contrary to life that is a cancer that will destroy what is true wholeness of life. Out of holiness is birthed wholeness in our being. When we live a holy life, we come into a wholeness in our being of subjective experience with God, a wholeness in our whole life where we cannot be controlled and manipulated by the temporal baits of this world used by people that are also controlled by the powers of darkness that can control people's lives and manipulate them to total destruction. And so King David had this right perception of God that he began to realize God was good. And then he went to the house of Obedidim and brought that ark with far greater expression of reverence and awe with way greater liberty to the point that he danced in such a way that Michael, as you know, had a religious mindset, wrongly condemned him and received judgment from God of not being childless because of that. Because she was just judging by outward appearance and wasn't looking at his heart. So I want to put all these chapters together to give you an understanding of what God is saying in this message here with all of these chapters. This is the second time this week that I received Ruth. This time it's Ruth 4, and I think it's also a sign that God may have a wife coming into my life soon. We'll see about that. He's been bearing witness of that recently, so we'll see if that who that is for sure. God has his time. I'm not concerned about that. I have been brought to the place where I am a virgin before God to be happy to be single as well. Been truly experiencing that. But in Ruth chapter 4, it is the account of Boaz taking Ruth as his wife. But the overall meaning here with all of these passages, how they all tie together, is that these are all people that had a right relationship with God of reverence. And we see that in the life of Naomi that experienced God's judgment because they probably should have not gone to Moab when there was a famine, but trusted God and didn't. And so she is severely dealt with by God so that her husband dies, her two sons die. And she's just left with those two ladies. And we, we know the account of Ruth and what happened. But Ruth still maintained her integrity before God and reverence. Yeah, she said, "Call, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasantness because I have been dealt with and I am bitter because of how severely God has dealt with me. But did she rebel and put her fist up against God? No, she accepted it. And she was still having that relationship of a life of prayer and of faith in God that was so real that Ruth saw it in her to the point that she was converted and said, my God shall be your God and your people shall be my people. And where you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die. I will be part of your people. She had a deep conversion to Christ because she saw the reverence and the awe of God in Naomi. 
And that was also shown in a respect to Boaz when she was so gracious and humble before Boaz and, and Boaz was, as a result, very gracious to her, which is a type of Christ, Boaz being Christ the head and Ruth the body of Christ and of God wanting to bring forth his bride in these last days that will be willing to be so desperate to be misunderstood, be willing to be misunderstood or whatever, be willing to be at the feet of Boaz, even if it could mean you could be, literally you're willing to lay down your life and show respect to Christ by being at his feet. And how does that play into all of these chapters? Well, what is in Obadiah? Well, Obadiah is about Edom and God's judgment on the nation of Edom because of their pride, because they lost the fear of God. They had an idolatrous perception of God that was similar to the perception that Cain had. It was similar to the moon God that existed in the time of Abraham, which also can be traced to the Babylonians and then to that great big rock with all those gods around it, of which one was chosen, which is the moon god. It was called the god that a lot of people worship today is saying there, there is, theirs is the one true god. But here in Obadiah, Edom treated Israel with disrespect and even persecuted them. And because of that, God pronounces very severe judgment on Edom. In fact, it says somewhere, I believe, in the book of Isaiah, how he will judge Edomia, which is referring to Edom. And it might be also referring to uh, Mount Seir. I'm not sure if it does. I'm going by memory here. But it's certainly referring to Edom. Well, here is something interesting. Because the ark was brought to the house of Obed-Edom and Ruth, who does she have as a child? Obed. What does Obed mean? It means serving. And in the and and the ark of God in First Chronicles 16 was brought to the house of Obed-Edom, which means serving Edom. And what happens if we rebel against God's severe dealings in our lives is that we can end up serving the enemy because we align with bitterness of heart and we feed that bitterness of heart instead of fearing God and persevering to seek him and to still have faith in him, we can lose our faith. And then we come in line with serving Edom. Obed-Edom. And yet, God blessed the house of Obed-Edom, serving Edom. The man that was probably a servant from Edom is blessed in King David saying, if you can bless him, wow, God, you must be good and to be so merciful to him to bless him. What if we rebel and we harden our hearts? And if King David had rebelled and hardened his heart, he would have been serving Edom. He would have been 
serving an idolatrous perception of God like Cain, who because of all the things he saw around him that were so negative, became bitter in his heart and unthankful, and then God became an enigma to him. God became someone that wasn't good, that was just like some creature in outer space. This is how polytheism developed way back then so quickly. It came out of an idolatrous, monotheistic perception of God as being some dictator that demands performance and appeasement, and you lose sight of the fact that he is good in the severity of his judgment. And so the next thing you're thinking is, oh, he's maybe just one powerful being in the universe. Maybe there's other beings that are just as powerful as him. Oh, so we can have other gods and worship them. And so the deception happens. And in James, what does James 3 emphasize? It emphasizes the importance of not cursing with your mouth. The enemy curses us and accuses us in order to get us to curse and accuse brothers and sisters in Christ and to accuse others in the body of Christ. To get us having a heart set and a mindset that is denominative. In other words, I can go into particular denominations and those people may love God an awful lot, but it's their little shell. And if you do not fully fit into their little mold, then what do they do? We love you, brother, but we're a little bit uneasy about you, so we keep our distance. <laughs> we love you. Oh, God bless you. You have a good day. Bye-bye. Nice brother, but he's deceived, you know. He, he doesn't see this. He doesn't see that. So let's not really love him. Let's not really treat him well, you know. Let's, uh, you know, this kind of mindset. God is wanting us in these last days to repent of denominative mindsets that happens to one another. It comes out of hardness of heart, which comes out of loving the world. But when we return to the genuine fear of God and we persevere, there comes a critical mass point where we will see like King David saw, the light, and we will begin to recognize, oh, though God has been so severe in my life, yes, there are things that happen in our lives that we didn't expect that would happen, that are tragedies, and the enemy uses that to try to bring us to the point where we serve Edom, where we serve the enemy, where we serve God out of a wrong and an impure heart, where we think that Either we, on the one hand, God is, is, is it's, it's a false gospel of grace, or on the other hand, it is legalism. God is calling us in these last days to come into the baptism of his love, to love one another, to wash one another's feet, to really go all the way with him in corporate assembly. How can we stand to be in some order that doesn't allow the body to function and move in the gifts of the Spirit? Some order where we hardly pray, where all we have is a few people at the front doing everything. Come on, brothers and sisters, wake up. It is time to fulfill John 17 in these last days and to break down all of these partitions. And then we will see our nation conquered with the gospel because they will see how much we love one another. God will literally baptize us in his love 
far greater than he did in the early church in these last days, when we come into this unity and this new order that he's calling his people to come into. I forget if I did anything for Friday. Yes, I did. Oh, how about that? I cast a lot on Friday, and I get Joshua 6 and Ruth 1, and wouldn't you know what is in this chapter? Wouldn't you know it? Both of these chapters have a woman who was a Gentile from a heathen background who are redeemed to become part of the assembly of God. Both recognized and received the one true God who is the God of Israel out of the genuine fear of God and were no doubt deeply converted. They could not say a word or make a sound until the appointed time to shout. This is about the account of Joshua 6, Rahab the harlot, and of course in Ruth, we've just talked about Ruth, so I don't need to repeat about the account of Ruth. This represents the discipline of self-mortification, walking around Nineveh. We want to conquer the enemy. So what do we have here? We have two women that are called out of the world system, which represents us as the body of Christ coming out of the world system in these last days. Rahab the harlot had the genuine fear of God in her to risk her life by hiding the spies because she said she believed the report of the children of Israel and what was happening that God was among them. And so she was redeemed. And so when they walked around that city and marched every time, they couldn't even make a sound or a peep, marching once around each day, Six days in the seventh day, they couldn't make a sound or a peep, and they're marching around this enormous city seven times. And then, when the priests blow the trumpet, there's a shout, and the walls fall. God is calling his people in this hour to conquer the world system. But first, before we can conquer the world system, we must come out and be separate. As it says in Revelations 18, do I need to go there and read it to you? This is what God is saying by his spirit in this hour. I will take you to Revelations 18 so that you can read that. Revelations 18. wasn't planning this, but I'm taking you to it right now. Revelations chapter 18. And this is what God says in Revelations 18 speaking to the church in the last days. And it says here, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. And so it goes on to show that God is going to judge the world system. And so I will not go on to mention about that. We are living in a time when God is calling the church to community, to come out of loving the world. That means to repent of the gods of amusement. That's all the sports that you spend time watching, hours and hours, and yet you don't spend any hardly any time in prayer. Now, Paul the Apostle said that I'm free to do all things, but I will not do those things that do not build me up or that take me away from God. And so let us know liberty, but let us know separation. And when we come into separation of the world, then there's a greater separation where he calls us forth 
to conquer the enemy by having the discipline to keep our mouths shut, to, to mortify our, our, our lives, to have self-control, to be able to obey his word, in this case, marching around the city, to learn to wait for God's timing before we release the prophetic word, before we speak that that word might be pure and not presumptuous, that it will come forth as an effectual sort of light to conquer the powers of darkness, that we as corporately would come together gathered truly in the name of Jesus instead of our own names and interests and hardness of heart that hinders us from coming together to be in his name. But when we are truly in his name, which is his being of love, when we are conformed to it, and conformed in that love to him and to one another in such a way when we agree is touching anything, it shall be done. And then the greater works will flow. Then the prophetic words will come that are from God. Then the crooked places will be made straight and the rough places smooth. And there are many people that love God today, but they're in error and they're causing roughness and stumbling and so on. And God is wanting to remove all of these things in this hour that we be those that are willing to speak the truth and love to one another, to have salt in ourselves. There are people that are leading people astray that are saying things that aren't true. And we need to recognize these things. And yet we need to love one another, even if some of us are blind in certain areas. If it's not the essential doctrines that cause godliness and relationship with God, brothers and sisters, let not be... Let us not be divided where they're at, but love them and receive them where they're at. They might not believe in speaking in tongues. We'll love them still, but they can't stop you from speaking to tongues because the word of God says, Paul said, that he wished that everyone would speak in tongues and not to forbid speaking in tongues. So if you want to disobey the word of God, that's something you have to deal with. Brothers and sisters, thank you for listening to this message. He is calling us to conquer the world system in these last days. The great walls of Nineveh will come crashing down when we come into such a unity and love one another in such a way that we become of one mouth and one voice as they did in the book of Acts in their prayers to God. That happens when we are willing to come into a new order under the headship of Christ to conquer our nations with the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, to bring forth his conquering bride church from every city, in every, from every background throughout the world, coming together in cities and towns, that praise may spring forth as of the buds of the garden in the last days just before he returns, and the world system crumbles as the towers of the earth are all smitten by that last earthquake, which is the last seventh seal, the seventh vial, and so on, that is shown in the book of Revelation. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message.